just kind of before COVID, actually quite a while before COVID, uh, we used to have coffee available in the foyer out the front. And then, of course, COVID happened and, well, you know, we stopped passing things around and we stopped doing stuff like this. Uh, but you might not have noticed that we've restarted coffee in the foyer before the service. Now, if you happen to come into the sanctuary from some other way instead of through the foyer, you wouldn't have noticed that. Uh, I'm not going to give you grace now to get up and go get a cup of coffee. You missed out. So next week, make sure that if you want a cup, you can grab that in the front. But this actually also serves two purposes. It's not only to keep you awake while I'm preaching. Uh, we're also aware that some folks, for all sorts of reasons, don't particularly enjoy going through to the activity hall afterwards. Maybe you're just a little less extroverted than what some of the rest of us are. Uh, you know, we don't want you to feel like you're missing out. We don't want you to feel like you're left out. So if you want to grab a cup of coffee afterwards and kind of sit in the sanctuary or just sit out in the foyer and chat to, you know, manageable group sizes of two, you're welcome to do that afterwards as well. Uh, so please grab that, enjoy that. Of course, if you remember during singing or during worship, you're also welcome to go and grab a cup while you're out there and enjoy that as we go. You know, a couple of years ago, I, I had the real privilege, I would say the real opportunity uh, and joy to find myself in New York City. Uh, it's just kind of one of those cities that never sleeps. There's all sorts of stuff on the go. Uh, I, I would never want to live in New York City. Not at all. But I really do enjoy visiting the place. Uh, while I was there, I had the opportunity with a couple of friends to go into the Museum of Modern Art, the Museum of Photography, and the Guggenheim Museum. Now, I don't know if any of you have been to any of those places, uh, but if you find yourself there, I would encourage you to go check them out. They're, they're pretty cool places. Uh, it's kind of that reminder that all cultures throughout history celebrate art. Uh, whether it's an ancient culture with rudimentary paintings up on a rock face somewhere, all the way through to perhaps the enlightened kind of cultures that have artwork, you know, as drama or music, poetry, sculptures, painting, all sorts. Uh, of course, I would say when you're going through the Guggenheim Museum, prepare to have your definition of art stretched. That's just the way it is, uh, but I think it's important. And the reason I think it is important is because I think art is important. I think art does so much for us. Uh, it, it stretches us. It challenges us. Uh, it, it kind of excites us. Uh, you know, in the things that art does or amongst all the things that art does, I think there are two things that art does particularly well for us. The first thing that art does for us is it shows us what life is like. It shows us what our experience is really like. And this is why, for some of us, we might gravitate towards a particular piece of art. Whether I'm talking music or poetry or whatever the case might be, we gravitate towards it because it, it, it kind of resonates with us. We, we see ourselves in it. We, we see our experience in it. And so we enjoy that art because, well, yes, it's telling us about ourselves. And so that's one side of art. But the other side of heart is uh, the other side of art is it shows us what life can be like. It sets up an ideal uh, and it gives us something to aim for, something to shoot for, and so we, we look at it 
And we're moved by it because we, we kind of look at it and we go, hey, I can be better. I can strive for something. And so for me, art is important because it, it has both of those elements. Uh, you know, cultures uh, kind of have this art approach. And it's interesting to look at cultures through history, how their experience in history generally dictates how their art is perceived and, and how their art comes across. And what I mean by that, for instance, is if you have a look at Greek art and Greek sculptures and, and Greek uh, kind of artistic expression, especially during the time when the Greek um, kind of culture and society was at its peak, when Greek civilization, in a sense, ruled the world, Greek art is fascinating. Because the Greek artists, perhaps influenced by Stoicism and the philosophy of the day, believe that art should reflect what people actually look like. And so that's why you can see a lot of Greek sculptures and there are lumps and bumps and wrinkles um, and the people aren't particularly beautiful because the artist kind of realized, well, have you looked around? You know, that's kind of what we look like. And so that's what we do. But then on the other side, you've got Roman art and Roman culture. And, and in the peak of Roman civilization, the Romans really just valued the ideal of what humanity should or could look like. And of course, the Romans also celebrated all of their pantheon of gods. And so when you look at Roman sculptures, the, you know, these are men and women that are smooth and beautiful and there's muscles in all the right places. And, and they kind of lifted up this ideal of this is what we aspire to. This is what we want to be. And so this is why it looks so beautiful. Now, of course, I could give you a fascinating history lesson on all of that. But we're here in the church. We're looking at the word of God. Uh, we don't really need to get distracted by Greek and Roman art. But why I mention those two sides of art and those two reasons for the existence of art is because I believe we find the same two approaches in the book of Acts. Now, for those of you who might be joining us today in person as a visitor, uh, hoping to join in our newcomer's coffee afterwards, uh, or those perhaps online that are visiting us and joining us this morning, uh, last week we began a series through the book of Acts. And we're titling this series, The Gospel on the Ground. And it's this view of how the gospel moves in the book of Acts. There is action, there is movement, there is motion. And yes, we often refer to Acts as the Acts of the Apostles because we see the apostles at work. But really, it can also be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit or the Acts of God because it's God who works through the apostles. And it's God who moves, and there's this action. But I believe that as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see those two sides of art that I've just spoken about. I think Acts does an amazing job of holding up an ideal. Acts does an amazing job of holding up what we should look like, what the body of believers should look like, how we should behave, how we should interact with one another. But at the same time, Acts realizes that we're, we're a pretty messed up bunch. And we get things wrong pretty often. And so Acts doesn't shy away from that. And so Acts is going to speak to us in both of those. Well, what do we do when we, we do mess up? What do we do when we are wrinkled, you know, and, and there's lumps and bumps in all the wrong places? How do we respond? As well as how do we aim for that glory? How do we aim for what God calls us to be and to do. 
And today, as we continue our journey, we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, whether on your phone or a device or perhaps a a paper Bible in front of you, I would encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read. uh, I, I would ideally want to read the whole chapter Uh, But that's a little bit long for this morning, so I'm just going to read the opening couple of verses and then the closing verses. We're going to read from verse 1 to 13 and then verse 42 to 47. It should be up on the screen behind me as well. Acts chapter 2, reading from verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, "Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language?" Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. And then jumping ahead to verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You know, when I read through Acts chapter 2 in its entirety, I think Acts 2 reveals to us the three most important elements of the entire book of Acts. In fact, if you had a paper Bible or perhaps your device had the portions broken up into, with different headings, you will see each three sections in chapter 2. The first section, the first most important element to the entire book of Acts is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The second key portion or the second key to the entire book is the evangelistic ministry of the church. And then the third is the community life of believers. Now, all three of those are three separate sermons. In fact, I could probably preach multiple sermons on all of them. 
And today I'm not going to preach multiple sermons. I'm just going to preach one that might be a little bit longer than normal. Uh, and I think that's okay. Uh, today I'm only going to look at the first and the third. The fullness of the Holy Spirit and then community life of believers. And the reason is intentional. Because that second portion, the evangelistic ministry of the church, echoes throughout Acts. And so we're going to come back to there uh, over and over as we go. The first thing I want to think about, the first thing I want to look at this morning is this idea of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So the context, uh, the place in which this takes place, uh, the events leading up to that, is that the disciples find themselves in Jerusalem during the Jewish harvest festival called Pentecost. Pentecost simply means 50th. Uh, that's all the word means is 50th. Because the festival took place 50 days after the Passover. A Pentecost was a pilgrimage feast. It was a pilgrimage celebration where people from all over the known world, or sorry, Jews from all over the known world, would come to Jerusalem to bring their tithes, to bring their offerings, to bring their worship into the storehouse and into the temple to present their gifts to God. You know, and as a quick aside, I read that and I just marvel at the way God works. Last week when we had a look through Acts chapter 1, Jesus says to his disciples, wait in Jerusalem until I send the Holy Spirit. That's what we read about from John as well. Jesus says, wait until I send the Holy Spirit who will come to you. And once you have the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem then into Judea, then into Samaria, and then into the whole world. Oh, and guess what, guys? When that happens, I'm actually going to bring the whole world to you. And they're all going to be around you. So don't panic. And I just love how God does that. Because he brings all the known world into Jerusalem, and suddenly God moves. And these people hear the praises of God in their own language. You know, we read in verse 2 and 3, as the Holy Spirit is given to them, we see two key biblical images, wind and fire. Over and over, when we read through Scripture, both Old and New Testament, wind and fire are these symbolic elements, the symbolic movement and the activity of God. We can go all the way back to Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, the passage known as the Valley of Dry Bones. And there's this powerful image of the breath of God, the wind of God that brings life. In fact, if you go and read Ezekiel 37, you'll see as these bones come together and as these bodies are formed and shaped in this vision, it's only when the breath, when the wind of God comes, that they come to life. And so there's the wind, but also we see the fire. We think of Exodus, where we've got the burning bush symbolizing the presence of God. We've got the fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness, and it was that image of the presence of God. And so again, here as we read, Luke, as he's telling the story to everyone, is very clear on wind and fire. So that anyone hearing that story, anyone reading it, would immediately go, wait a minute, this is a move of God. Because there is wind and fire. But Luke points out that the wind and fire that moves doesn't just simply move around. The fire separates. And there are these tongues of fire that come to sit on every single person in that gathering. 
And we might kind of go, okay, we just gloss over that. But this is an important element. The presence of God has shown up. That was an understanding that Israel had throughout the Old Testament. Whenever the Ark of the Covenant moved, when the temple was built, the presence of God would, would come upon that place. But the difference was in the Old Testament, the presence of God was symbolic over the nation of Israel. And so the Israelites understood that God is our God, but God is a national God over all of us. Luke points out here, the Holy Spirit comes and rests on each individual. God is at work in each and every individual's life. And so immediately for you and I, we should take great courage in that. Because it means God is at work in my life as much as anyone else. God longs to be present in my life and your life as much as anyone else. There's no differentiation. It's not like there's one better Christian than another one. It's not like this guy got more fire and this guy got less fire. Not at all. God separated and those fire, uh, the tongues of fire came upon each person. We have this individual access to the Spirit, this individual access to God. The Holy Spirit is given to each and every one of us. And that's kind of what I pointed out last week as Jesus said to wait. If, if we declare that God is our Lord and Savior, if we understand that Jesus Christ has died for my sin, He's risen back to life, and I now worship Him as King, as Lord, and as Savior, it means I have the Holy Spirit. Anyone who finds themselves in that place declaring audibly that Christ is Lord has the Holy Spirit within them. And so we don't need some extra activity or, or this extra baptism for want of a better word. We already have Christ. We already have the Holy Spirit. It's a complete deal. Now, of course, if you are coming to church because you're just trying to keep the peace at home and effectively you've been dragged here, or maybe you're sitting in a lounge watching this morning or this evening if you're my parents back home in South Africa. Uh, but maybe you're here because you don't really want to be here. Well, then the only way we know we have the Holy Spirit is when we have declared. That's what Scripture says. Unless we declare with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's what separates us. That's what assures us of salvation. Nothing else that we might do, the doing comes later on in life. But when we declare, we receive life. And in receiving life, we receive the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, if, if you're kind of questioning and you go, well, I don't really know where I am in that. You know what? Myself and or Pastor Jennifer would love to chat with you about what that means. And you're, this is an open invitation. You can email me. You can take me for coffee. You can chat with Jennifer. We would love to walk you through that process. But after the, the tongues of fire come and separate and land on each person, we then read in verses 4 to 12 how they began to speak in different tongues. And the tongues here are evidently languages. Because the crowd that comes and this diverse crowd from pretty much the entire known world all hear the gospel being proclaimed. All hear this worship. All hear these praises being declared in their own language. 
So they hear their languages. And I think often we read a passage like this and we get distracted by this idea of tongues. It's clear when we read here that God has moved supernaturally. He's empowered his people to declare his praises, to allow foreigners to understand. And God is able to do that. In fact, God does that because our God is a miraculous God. He is not bound by our rules, our laws. He can do as he sees fit. This passage here is not a proof text that if you are a Christian or if you have the Holy Spirit in you, that you must speak in tongues. Of course, we'll touch on this as we go throughout the book of Acts. But certainly as we read through here, often what happens is sometimes we who have perhaps been Christian for many years in our lives, we don't speak in tongues and we go, well, maybe I'm missing out. My friends, I know plenty of God-fearing, faithful worshipers of Jesus Christ who do not speak in tongues. They are no less Christian than the handful I know that do speak in tongues. This passage isn't saying that, okay, that's the litmus test. That's the image. If you have the Holy Spirit, you speak in tongues. No, not at all. What this passage is saying is as we wait, as we yield to the Holy Spirit, He will move through us in a way that takes the gospel out. And we'll see about the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts later on as we go, because we need all the gifts at work. Every one of the Holy Spirit gifts is what is needed within the church. But then after this happens, after the, the disciples speak in, in miraculous ways to everyone around, uh, verse 12 and 13 gives this interesting response of the crowds. The crowds are drawn in. They, they hear the commotion. They see what's going on. Uh, they hear their own language. And I love the two responses. Because one response is this fascination, this questioning. What is going on? We're, we're bewildered. We, we want to know more. Of course, the other side of the response are those who simply reject and scoff. Those who can hear. And it's important to note that when they record, aren't these Galileans? What the crowd are doing, what the crowd is saying is they're acknowledging these people shouldn't know these languages. Now, Galilee at the time was this little backwater region. They weren't sophisticated. They didn't have all the languages. They spoke in the common language of everyone. There's no ways they knew how to speak a language that the Cretans and the Parthians and the Medes would understand. And so there's this miracle, but yet the crowds, part of the crowds, scoff and they reject. And they say, ah, they've been drinking too much. Of course, those responses should immediately remind us. When you and I declare the praises of God, when you and I speak about what God has done in our life, when you and I proclaim the gospel message, the good news that Jesus Christ both died for our sins and has risen back to life and promises us life forevermore, we're going to get the exact same responses. We're going to get those who go, tell me more. I want to know. I want to understand. And we're going to get those who look at us and go, you're just a fool for believing something as backward as that. What utter garbage. You know, that declaration of them being drunk is a powerful image. That declaration of them being drunk reminds me of Paul's letter to Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 5 verse 18 to 20, Paul says this, Do not get drunk on wine. 
which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a powerful image. Drunk or Holy Spirit. And what Paul is saying is, who are you controlled by? Because when you're drunk, you're controlled by the alcohol. And those who are drunk have no control over themselves. This is why you know, we see people who are drunk do crazy and stupid and foolish things. Sometimes even tragic things. Because they have no control. And Paul is saying, every one of us is controlled by something. So if you're going to be controlled, don't be controlled by external substances. Don't be controlled by something like wine. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And I know there's, there's someone who might say, well, I'm not in control by either of those. I'm in control of myself. No, you're not. Your flesh is in control. Because I guarantee as we chat and discuss, we will discover that really you're pursuing pleasure and the avoidance of pain. You're pursuing comfort. You're going to sacrifice everything and anything for self. No, you are not in control. Your flesh is. And so we're reminded that if we're going to be yielding, let us yield to the Holy Spirit. Let us serve God and declare His majesty Let us proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, aware that when we do that, some will accept, some will reject. What matters is that we are filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit and that we serve God. In Acts chapter 13, verse 52, after a lengthy story of the the apostles at work and at move, going through good times, going through hard times, and all sorts of experiences, we read this line, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. This is the call for you and I. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we're supposed to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to yield to the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to seek opportunities to say, yes, Lord, here am I, lead me. And so these disciples, these apostles, they're filled with the Spirit. And as we read through Acts chapter 2, it leads them into evangelistic ministry. And we read that in verses 14 to 41 as this kind of opening preaching of the gospel and and God adds to the church about 3,000 people in one day. And of course, that is held together by my second thought this morning. And it's this idea of the community life of believers. And I think it's important to remind ourselves that this little portion in Acts chapter 2 is very much like Roman art. Remember I spoke about earlier, the Romans had the ideal, the Romans, everything was beautiful, everything was strong, everything was amazing. And so we read Acts chapter 2, and this is what it's holding before us. The church in Acts, they were pretty messed up too. There were some, some bad apples within the church. There were some experiences that really didn't go how they had hoped. And we'll pick up on those as we go. But that doesn't change the fact that God puts before us what He longs for us. And He gives us this glimpse of this early community life of believers as they join together, as they do life together. You and I might really struggle with this image, this community idea. 
Here in Canada and especially across North America, self is held up as the highest virtue. We live in a world where everything is about me, the individual. As long as I'm happy, as long as I'm comfortable, as long as I get my way, then we're all okay. We struggle with this idea that, that there is a community. How we come into church and, and we change the hymns and the choruses we sing. Remember that song, It's All About You? It's all about you. I know that's terrible. But we change it to, it's all about me. Or we sing, I could sing of my love forever. How great I am. Sing with me how great I am. That's what we do. We don't understand community because we think it's all about us. Even the others around us, you know, we think they're there for us. And so we see in this early church community this idea that if we want to experience God, if we're going to live in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, if we're going to proclaim the evangelistic gospel message, well, it's supported as we live together in community. Notice that the early church focuses on four things. And we read them in those verses 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And they devoted themselves to prayer. You know, to devote oneself is to give all of oneself, or at least a very large part of oneself. To give of one's time, to give of one's resources for the sake of something or someone else. And this is what the early church did. They didn't just pass the time by by occasionally doing these things. They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I touched on that last week when I spoke about how Jesus Christ taught. Our faith is not some kind of little airy-fairy thing. There is doctrine. There is depth. There is teaching. And this is why it's so important that we come together, not just in church, but we come together in life groups, in home groups. Uh, We come together at times to discuss the apostles' teaching, to discuss the Word of God, to wrestle with it, to understand it, and not only to understand it, but then to apply it, to challenge one another how to live out the Word of God in the places we find ourselves. But the early church didn't just devote themselves to teaching. They didn't just sit in a corner going, well, we know more than everyone else. Let's look down our noses at them. No, no, no. And they devoted themselves to teaching, but they also devoted themselves to fellowship. This is one of those words that in church circles, we sometimes, we misunderstand. Because we, we think fellowship is drinking coffee in the foyer after church. That's a part of fellowship. Fellowship is doing life together. Fellowship isn't only coming together at church to understand and to go through the apostles' teaching. Fellowship is sharing life. Fellowship is is helping one another when someone needs help. it's, It's serving. It's saying, how can I come alongside you in the place you find yourself? And what can I do for you? That's fellowship. It's sharing myself. Warts and all. 
It's helping each and every one understand, hey, here's my story. Let me hear your story. That's what fellowship is. But not only did they devote themselves to fellowship, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And breaking of bread here is far more than just having meals together because we read that further on in the passage, that they met together in homes, they they shared meals together. No, as the community of believers got together, whether congregationally or in different homes, there was this deliberate action of breaking bread, of, of having communion together. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus taught. When Jesus shared that last communion or that last meal with his disciples, he taught, do this in remembrance of me. Do this often. This is why we do this at least once a month. We gather together and we break bread. And you know why we break bread? Yes, because Jesus tells us to. He commands us. But one of the reasons why God commands us to break bread together is to remind us that we need grace. We need forgiveness. I can't earn my way into the kingdom of God. I'm not good enough. I'm a sinner. I need salvation. And so I break bread to remind me. But you know what I do? When I'm breaking bread and I'm reminding myself I'm a sinner in need of grace and I share that bread, I remind myself that you're a sinner too and you need grace. And because you need grace, well, maybe I should be patient with you. Maybe I shouldn't have unrealistic expectations. Maybe I shouldn't look at you and go, well, because you sin differently to me, you're worse than me. No. I break bread as a reminder that both of us, all of us, are equally in need of a Savior, in need of grace. And so we proclaim the gospel every time we do that. But not only did they devote themselves to the breaking of bread, they devoted themselves to prayer. It reminds me of Zechariah 4 verse 6 in this image. And and God responds to Zechariah and he says, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. If we want to see the Holy Spirit moving, if we want to see the Holy Spirit at work in our midst, it starts and happens as we pray together. The early church committed themselves to these things. You know, the they in verse 42 and 43 reminds us that these priorities took place as a community. They came together and they practiced and they focused on them together. You know, every now and then, in fact, I had this experience just uh, three weeks ago. Every now and then I will get into conversation with someone and And they'll discover, you know, I'm a pastor, maybe they know I'm a pastor, and so we'll talk, and at some point they will point out that they're a Christian. And I'm always like, oh, that's awesome. What church do you go to? What what community of believers are you part of? And every now and then they'll go, oh, no, no, I I don't do church. And I'm always like, do you understand what Christian means? Like, it's totally fine. Now, what, I'm, what I am not saying is that to be a Christian, you have to be part of a denominational church. Like, you have to go to Baptist, you have to go to Methodist, you have to go to Anglican, something like that. That's not what I'm saying. But when I read through the scriptures, I do not find Christians de- apart from community. I do not find believers who are not part of a community. Now, I, I, it feels a little bit like I'm preaching to the choir because you're all here. This morning, anyway. But it's such an important reminder. Uh, 
I don't question people's faith. That's not my job. That's God's job to eternally judge. But when I read through Scripture, I believe that a believer, a Christian, cannot be a Christian without being part of a community where there is devotion to the apostles' teaching, where there is devotion to fellowship, where there is devotion to the breaking of bread and prayer. If you're part of a house church that does that, awesome. If you're part of a bigger body that does that, fantastic. But I'm not sure that you're living in accordance to the Word of God when you say that I can be that without being a part of anything. And so as we see this community, as we see this fellowship of believers empowered and filled by the Holy Spirit proclaiming the gospel message, I love how chapter 2 ends because we see this incredible result We see people, both in the community and outside, filled with wonder at the miraculous deeds that take place. And we'll read about some of those as we read through Acts. And we'll wrestle with the question of, well, if the miracles took place then, should they be taking place now? I don't know about you, but we as a church have seen some miracles in the last couple of weeks. God is still at work. That early church lived in such a way where they cared for one another. When someone had a need, someone else provided. They sold off goods so that everyone was cared for. Now, I don't think they were preaching some sort of um, communism or socialism or something like that. That's not where we go in this passage. No. What the early church understood was if someone has a need and I have the means to help that need, then I, I serve. I pool together. This is why we talk about giving in church. We, we don't take up an offering. We don't take tithes. We don't bring gifts to church just so that we can pay for utilities. Or, you know, I've joked about my private jet fund before, uh, that, which is woefully under bu- budget at the moment. We don't do that. We pool our resources because we understand that together we can do so much more. And God blesses that as we come together. And so every little bit you give, doesn't matter what the world determines, whether whether the world might go, oh, you're just giving peanuts. Look how much that person's giving. No, God doesn't look at it like that. And so as the believers pool their resources together, so the kingdom grows, so the kingdom is advanced. The early church, they saw God at work. And what did God do? God added to their number. Those who were being saved. In fact, daily, those who were being saved. I don't know about you, but that's my prayer. Continually, I pray for revival. Continually, I pray, God, would you add to our number daily? And God brings me back here and says, Brian, I add to your numbers daily when you live as a community filled with the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the gospel and then walking together. That's when I move. That's when I add. So what do we do with this? Where do we go with this? My brothers and sisters, and I call you brother and sister if you are in Christ, as I've already said. Just as I have the Holy Spirit within me, so you have the Holy Spirit within you. That Holy Spirit seeks to move and to work in ways much bigger than you and I could even imagine. And it's when we begin to look out and to see what God is doing in the world 
And to see the need for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, when we go and we proclaim that, and then walk in community with each other, meaning that we, we love and we serve and we forgive and we journey with and we share meals and we encourage one another and we pray with one another, when we do that, that's when we will see God do incredible things. And so I invite you, why not join into that community? Serve in the fullness of the Holy Spirit for God's kingdom and God's glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we read through this account in the book of Acts, as we read of what we often call the birth of the early church, as Jesus, you returned to the Father, and you said to us, it's for our benefit that you go back to the Father. It's for our good that you return to glory. Because when you return, so you will send the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, I thank you that you did. Thank you that you sent the Holy Spirit and ignited this movement, this gospel movement that would proclaim salvation to the ends of the world. Where men and women from all over would witness to the resurrection of Christ and to the power of God. Now, Jesus, as we sit some 2,000 years later, I pray that your spirit would move in us as much as it did then. Help us to yield to your spirit, to walk in that fullness, to live in that. And as we become empowered by the Holy Spirit, gifted in so many different places, Father, I pray that we would understand what it means to be a community. That we would learn to, to devote ourselves to others. That we would devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to understand your word. That, Lord, we would devote ourselves to fellowship. That we would start to invite people into our homes to share a meal. That we would serve people. That we would walk alongside people regardless of what that might be. And that, Lord, we would devote ourselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Aware that we need you to move. And aware that we need to fall to our knees and cry out for that. Father God, as we do that, I pray that indeed, just as you added to the church in that time, so, Lord, you would add to the church again today. That we would see men and women, young and old, those far off from you, those who right now might scoff at the gospel, those who might reject, I pray that your spirit would stir in them so that they might receive. And they might come and ask, what is the reason for what is taking place? What is the reason for this hope? What is the reason for this joy? And that, Jesus, they wouldn't see us. They would see you. And they would give all glory to you. May your kingdom come and may your will be done. Amen. Amen.